John, since you're our guest today, would you pray for us, and then uh, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for this day you've given to us, Lord. We thank you for this country that we're uh, able to live in, Lord, and express our uh, uh, desires for uh, the way our government is run, Lord, and the freedoms that we have. Lord, we uh, thank you for this church that we have, that uh, we can extend that freedom, Lord, and learn more about you each and every day, each and every week, Lord. Pray you be with Troy as he brings his message tonight, Lord, that our eyes and our ears will be open and be accepted to your word. Anyway, through, there's a sheet for notes. All right, so I'd like to do a quick review. We're halfway through our semester. Um, if you recall... Uh, because I missed one week, it was the second week, we're going to cut the very last lesson off called Action Plan, which is essentially a review of the whole semester, and since I review periodically anyway, um, I didn't. I felt like that was kind of a nothing week anyway, so um, I would like to spend, now that this is going to be week seven or lesson seven, I'd like to just quickly kind of trace back through what we've talked about in very uh, summary fashion just to refresh your memory on what we've talked about. The first week, the lesson title was called God's New Community. And there we saw what the church was and then how the church fit within God's overarching plan. And we talked about um, many things, but we talked about God's big picture in Scripture. And there was a covenant in the Old Testament that I tried to demonstrate was a significant piece of, of putting your Bible together and understanding the relationship of the church with the Old Testament. Does anyone recall what covenant that was? What? The Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised, among other things, that through his seed, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. So all types of people throughout the world would be blessed through this special seed. And so we noted that while the church is a brand new entity in the scope of biblical history, as the story of God's plan just unfolds, the church burst on the scene at the day of Pentecost as a brand new thing, yet it is not um, completely disconnected from what came before it, right? It was actually birthed out of believers from that were left over from the nation of Israel. So the church is, is uh, not disconnected from and unrelated uh, to the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel. So the church, we could say, maybe is an expansion of believing Israel that now does not just include Israelites, ethnically speaking, it includes all believing people, all people that share the faith of Abraham in Jesus Christ. So Gentiles, Jews, women, men, children, and the whole nine yards. In that expanding of the borders of God's people is in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so some of the implications that we talked about is that the Old Testament is our history. Israel's history is our history. They they are where we came from. So as uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, we can look back and we can see in the old the pages of the Old Testament examples for us what to do, what not to do. That is our history. 
Then lesson two, we looked at what a biblically functioning community was. And I tried to alliterate it this way. There's five main functions or buckets that we could put everything that the church is supposed to do in. And the acronym was WIFES. W-I-F-E-S. Anyone remember what those things uh, stood for? W was for worship. I for instruction. F. E. And S. Wonderful. And lesson three, a spirit-directed community. And we uh, spent most of our time trying to just simply drive home the point that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit's power and direction. His guidance. And I tried to make a, a case for the fact that at times we, in our um, fear of uh, charismatic stuff, we have so uh, boxed in the Holy Spirit that that keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, is... Uh, is a very sterile, very uh, non-experiential sort of thing. And so operating under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and leaning and depending on Him is something that is often foreign to us uh, Christians that tend towards the conservative side of things. And... um, while we ought, we have to be careful, we have to also find that balance. Because we, um, if we uh, quarantine the Spirit of God, we um, rob ourselves of the power that um, God has given us to grow. <clears throat> then we moved to lesson four, talked about growing in Christ's likeness, and really we spent the entire time trying to uh, we could talk about Christ uh, growing in Christ likeness from a lot of different fronts, but we talked about it with re- specific respect to growth in the Word of God, and we said that we need to know know the facts of Scripture. We must believe Scripture, and we must apply Scripture. So we must know, then we must trust it, and we must obey it. If we could put it that simply. And we talked about worshiping together two weeks ago, and we defined worship as, I'm not going to ask you because you'll probably read it, um, a believer's humble response to the greatness and goodness of God. And we try to take that definition apart and try to prove from Scripture how each of those things is a key component, a believer's humble response. Well, only believers can truly worship God. It is a genuinely humble response because God is God and we are not. We're his creation. He's the creator. So there is a humility. It is a response. It is not just simply uh, head knowledge. It's not just facts. It is a whole being response. Mind, will, emotions, everything. And it is a response to the greatness and the goodness of God, who He is and what He has done. So that is what worship is. And that worship, a uh, definition of worship is, uh, I think, wide enough to incorporate um, not just what we typically think of as worship is singing. No, worship is, as Romans 12 says, 
everything in life. Everything that we do is an act of worship to God. And then last week we looked at enlarging the family, or another way to put it is evangelism. And we spent most of our time thinking back through what we looked at in the very first semester of our study, this idea of maximum impact. There's this equation. To have maximum impact, to enlarge the family, to spread the gospel, we need to have high potency, a contagious Christ-likeness. Coupled with close proximity, a, a, a close connection with unbelievers, we must then have a clear presentation or clear communication of the gospel itself. We need to know what people need to know in order to be saved. And if you can couple those three things, you'll have maximum impact as as an ambassador for Christ. And we also talked briefly at the end, how do we avoid the extremes of both isolation, where we get in our little holy huddle and we can't have any contact with the world, and then on the other end, identification where we are just so compromised that you wouldn't know the difference. This week, um, we're going to talk about loving one another. And really, this is a foundational lesson for the, the, the next however many lessons. We have five lessons left, four lessons left or so. Because this is going to set the stage for um, encouraging one another, serving one another, praying for one another, and so on, that we're going to discuss in the, five, the remaining chapters. So tonight, the goal of our lesson with respect to loving one another is to discover the connection between union with Christ and the unity of the body of Christ. <clears throat> My hunch is you have no idea what I'm talking about. Because that has nothing to do really with uh, if you did the homework, which I assume you probably didn't, but if you did do the homework, it has nothing to do with what we talked about in the homework. But it's something that I think is important um, and I'll just tip my hand here. I think oftentimes, as Christians, we talk about the duty of what we are supposed to do, but we never get to the why. And so what my desire is tonight is to show you why love is a natural outgrowth of who we are as God's people. Um, And it's rooted in a very important a theological term called the union with Christ. So we are going to get there, and I want you to see it. I'm going to define it for you. We've talked about it in the past, but I want to make sure that you see the connection, um, and I hope that that will help spur you and I on to loving one another as we are. <clears throat> so this is going to be very like sermonic tonight rather than normally back and forth like it normally is. So that's our goal. Here's the first point we're going to talk about, and it's uh, I just put the context of our unity. And the context of our unity is the church. We are not, as we will talk about, isolated believers. <clears throat> we are not isolated believers. God, in His Word, there's no conception of a believer that is just an isolated individual believer floating out um, in, in, in the world. So we have defined the church, the very first lesson of this semester is this. It's a diverse group of people 
unified as one body by faith in and through Jesus Christ. The church, and there's this is a way pared down definition, so don't take this to Wayne Grudem and see if he agrees, because he'll have a million caveats. Um, so I'm trying to keep this one simple, but it's a diverse group of people, <clears throat> unified as one body, by faith, in and through Jesus Christ. So the context of our unity is the church. What is the church not? <clears throat> Typically we we would say to our kids, "Hey, it's time to go to church." And what do we think about and what what is it and naturally goes off in our mind? Building. Oh, we got to go to church, which is our cinder block walls and our cool steeple thing and, you know, our new auditorium. But it's not that, right? It's not a geographic location. The church gathers in a geographic location, but the church is not a geographic location. It's not um, all the cool programs that we have, the Stevens Ministry and the Cafe Community and the Community Institute and all the different versions and iterations of community that we have at Community. So the church is an organism, as our book talks about. It is, what, a diverse group of people. people. So the church is people, and here are three things that are undeniably clear from Scripture that we have to get in our minds. Three components of the church. One, it's diverse. Right? I mean, we have black, white, men, women. We have Hispanic. We have little cute kids like my my kids. I'm biased. We, we have we have it all, right? We have a lot of different levels of people in the journey too, like believers who've yeah. been here a long time and new believers. Yeah, we have people who've just stepped in to the Christian life, and we have people like Ron and Sue Bakes, who I'm picking them out of the crowd because they're in my community group. And here are these faithful, faithful people who have been at ministry forever. I mean, he taught me trumpet when I was in second grade. <laughs> And he would slap my fingers with a pencil. <laughs> I mean, I mean that guy has been around the block, and he—I mean—he's a faithful servant of God who has um, abundant wisdom. I mean that—that's the kind of people we have in our church. So it's a diverse group of people. <clears throat> yet that diversity is united. So unity is a key. And and really, our unity ought to be the thing that that speaks volumes to the world. Right? That should be one of the, if not the, uh, marks that makes us unique and different and attracts the world to us. Is that we are a people... We are God's people who love the unlovely. 
and we love each other. Even if we don't have close relationships with them. Even if they look different or they act different or they're, they're weird. I mean, really, the church ought to be filled with the, like, the weirdest people there are. Because when you think about that, right, it's the weird, lowly people, the humble people that truly see their need. So the church is filled with a bunch of weirdos. And the church ought to be the people that love each other. So there's diversity, there's unity, but there's interdependence. And we're going to look at two texts quickly that demonstrate this. But interdependence, we are not isolated people. We are a diverse group of people unified as one body. So we are dependent, just like my body is dependent on my heart to pump blood and my lungs my heart's dependent on my lungs to get oxygen into it and then throughout my body. And my legs are, de- my body's dependent on my legs and my feet to work right to get me from point A to point B. And you go on and on and on. We are a body and we are dependent upon one another because as gifted as Pete is, he can't do everything. And as gifted as John is, he can't do everything. And the same with Karen and everybody. As gifted as we all are, we're not gifted with the whole complement. So you can't be the hands and the feet and the buttocks and the back and the brain and the nose, you know, and the boogers and, you know, so on and so forth. You can't be all that because God hasn't designed you to be isolated or independent. He has created you to be interdependent. Two texts that show this. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. Say this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, so here it's talking about exactly what I just talked about, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So what I can contribute to the body While this is debatable by means of teaching, you might not have that same gift. But I can't contribute what Pete does in sound booth. Because if you want me in the sound booth, you're going to have some crazy stuff going on during the service. (laughs) You get the point. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I love this text. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So in other words, represent God well. What does that look like? Be completely humble, verse 2, and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Assumed in that, bearing with one another in love, it assumes that you don't agree and see eye to eye on everything. So there might be a day when it comes down to me and John have have fisticuffs about something, but we do so in love because we disagree about, about something. And it's okay that we might not see every little detail, every little piece of doctrine, every little thing in life the exact same way, but we bear with one another in love. And then verse 3, making every effort making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope 
when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you get the, the idea of oneness? You can't escape oneness in that text. We are to be interdependent, unified in our diversity. So the context of our unity is the church, a diverse group of people unified as one body by faith in and through Christ. So what's the foundation? What's the why? What's the like what's the thing inherent in the church that makes us a people of love and unity? Well, I think the foundation of our unity is our union with Christ. And this is a theological term that I'm going to attempt to define. I've got my own definition. I I, I didn't get this from anybody else, so you might want to filter this appropriately. But I want to start with our definition of the church because I want to highlight a couple things within this definition. The church is a diverse group of people unified as one body, right? So we're unified as one body in and through Christ. So the thing that unifies us is being in Christ, being saved through Christ, right? So we have faith in Christ, and by faith in Christ, we are in Christ, And when we are in Christ, then therefore we are united with him and with his people. As we will see in the next definition, union with Christ. It's a long, kind of theologically inputted definition, but or weighty definition, but here it is. It's the act of God. So being united with Christ is something that God does. We can't do it. But it's the act of God through which the Holy Spirit connects the believer to Christ and his church. So it's an act of God wherein the Holy Spirit connects the believer to Christ and his church. So I hope you're, you're seeing the arrow that I'm trying to like this logical arrow that I'm trying to follow through this whole lesson, and maybe it's it's only in my brain that it's connecting, but I want you to see all the pieces connecting. The definition of the church, the context of our unity, a diverse group of people unified as one body by faith in and through Christ. In and through Christ. We are united to Christ. Why? What is the impetus for our unity? Why is love in unity the natural... Why should it be the thing um, that characterizes the church? It's because we are in Christ and united to His people. We are united with Him. We are connected to Him and His people. We have become family. We are God's people. He is our Father. We are His family. Love ought to be, even though in a sin-cursed world it's all screwed up, but love in a family 
I mean, ought to be unmistakable. I mean, my mom and dad, not to embarrass my dad, but I mean, my sister and I are about as opposite as you can get. My sister's as awesome. But my sister does not claim Christ. My sister was a pain in the rumpus for a long time. And she has caused lots of pain. But my parents loved her through thick and thin. And my parents modeled before my eyes, throughout all the pain, love. Only God-given love. And, and, and that's the kind of love that we ought to have for all of us. That family kind of love, now, it's in, it ought to be inherent, it ought to be genetically coded within us to love each other. And that ought to be the testimony of the church. Sadly, I don't think it is. So our union with Christ, the fact that we are connected by the power of the Holy Spirit to Christ and His church is the foundation, the reason why we ought to be loving towards other people. In other words, it should be natural. Rather than a duty, it ought to be a delight. So the expression of our unity. The expression of our unity is love. So we have the context of our unity is the church. The foundation of our unity is this theological term called our union with Christ, our connection to Christ and His church, His people. And then the expression of our unity is love. And I'm going to offer three different definitions. They should be familiar to all of you because we've talked about them before. The first is Pastor Ken's definition, doing what is in the best interest of another. He has a nice, succinct definition, doing what is in the best interest of another. Um, I have always defined it Uh, Mine would be the second bullet point. Not that I think mine's better or worse than his. It's just this is how I've always thought of it. The sacrifice of self for the good of the person you love. I mean, essentially we're saying the same exact thing. The last definition, it's obviously much longer, four lines. I've given this to you before when we talked about God's love for us. I believe it was first semester. But this, to me, is the single best definition I've ever found of love. It's written by a guy named uh, Modi Baucom. He's, he's uh, written several books. He used to be a pastor in Texas. Now he is serving in a seminary in Zambia, I believe. Um, or starting a university or something over there. But he defines love as this, an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. An act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So it's an act of the will, it's a decision, it's a choice. It's not led and initiated by a feeling. 
So it's an act of the will, it's a choice, it's a decision. It's accompanied by emotion, it's accompanied by feeling, but it's not led by. And that's where our world gets it so screwed up and backwards. Because if you don't have warm and fuzzies towards something, then it can't be true love. So it's an act of the will, it's a choice, accompanied by, not led by emotion, that leads to action. And so it's not just a a theoretical love, it's a love that moves. So it's proved by our efforts, and it's on behalf of, or for the good of its object. I don't think you can get a better definition of that. So the expression of our unity is love. And we're going to tease that out over the next three or four weeks. Of So what does loving each other look like within the body? How can we serve each other? How can we pray for one another? How can we encourage one another? Let me just uh, point you to two, two texts that would substantiate this claim that we must express our unity by means of love. So the, the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with everything that you are your heart, your soul, and your mind. Verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. That's the Cliff's Notes of the entire law. Upon the entire law, all of the saints, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. So love God and love others. If you need just a, a paradigm, a simple paradigm, if you're like me, you want simplicity, boil it all down to the lowest common denominator, here it is. If you want to know how to live life, love God and love others. Filter everything through that grid and you're going to be doing all right. It's so Matthew 22. Then John 13, 34 and 35 A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here, Jesus' own words, he says, hey, if if we are going to be the people that we are supposed to be, love is going to be the hallmark characteristic of us. This is going to be the thing that testifies of God's greatness, testifies of me, this is going to differentiate us from everybody else. So, in conclusion, I would like to just, uh, I would like to jump a little bit of ahead, a little bit ahead, and just kind of tease out some personal thoughts I have about how can we love one another in light of kind of what we've talked about here, that we are, as a church, we're a diverse group of people unified as one body by faith in and through Jesus Christ. The foundation of which is our union with Christ. It is an act of God whereby the Holy Spirit connects us to Christ and his people. So Christ is the centerpiece. Christ is our foundation. And I want to just kind of tie this whole thing up. And then how do we love, how do we demonstrate our unity in Christ? The natural outflow is love. So how can we love each other? And this will get 
I'm getting ahead, but as I've just thought about that this week and just some of my own personal struggles, I wanted to share a text with you that's going to seem like it has nothing to do with this, but I, I think that I can tie it up in a nice, neat bow and help you see, hopefully, what I have been um, challenged with. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Here the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, so based on what you just got done saying, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and that's bold, let us throw off. Let us throw off, let us free ourselves of everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You think, okay, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Let me, let me try to explain Who of us, in verse one, if I if I asked you if I asked you as just a small group tonight to get really personal and to be really vulnerable for five minutes, which who of us could not cite numerous things in each of those categories? Things, just stuff that that just hinders us. It's weights that weigh us down. I mean, we all have those things, right? I mean, just the junk of life, whether it's broken relationships, not of, of your own making, or it's kids that are home sick, or it's parents that are having issues of, of poor health, or who knows what it might be. Or sin that so easily entangles. I mean, if we were really raw and honest... We could all sit there, and, and if we were all willing to allow each other to see our own hearts, and, and none of us probably are really that willing and eager to do that, but to say, here is the ugliness of my heart. I love this more than God. And I wrestle with lust or anger or whatever. We're all there, right? And, and, and what happens is our eyes fall down, right? Because we get entangled. We get hindered. We get weighed down and we get discouraged. And some of us are prone to get depressed and, and anxious and we, we get low, right? And our, our, our heads sink and our eyes get fix, fixated on all the problems in the weeds and in everything that's just weighing us down. And then there's there's those who, or maybe at the same time, our heads are hung low in depression, but yet we're we've got our eyes always on the next thing, the next thing that's going to bring us satisfaction, and our eyes are out wandering for the next thing, the next thing. What what what's going to bring me make me happy because I'm not happy. And so we just bing, 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 and we pop, we pop from one thing to the next. Or maybe we just think we're so puffed up and we're so good that oh, we're we're free, and, and our our eyes are lifted, and and we're we just think we're on top of the world and we're full of ourselves. 
But see, in all those scenarios, our eyes are not fixed on the right thing. Because the junk of life is immense. Because there's stuff that weighs you down, that depresses your head, and gets you focused on all the wrong things. And there's stuff out there that allures you to focus on all of these things. And and there's our innate pride where we want to be king and dethrone God, and we think we are it, and we are the center of the universe. And all those things are natural in our humanity and our sinful nature. But the problem is that our eyes are not fixed on what that's supposed to be fixed on. And where you and I can love one another is to help lift our head up, bring our vision in, to tunnel vision on Christ, to humble others and ourselves and lower our gaze to fix it on Christ. <coughs> Fixing our eyes on Christ. Because I need my eyes and the crappiness of my life to be fixed on Christ. You need your eyes to be fixed on Christ. Because Christ is the thing that is ultimately the reason why we even love each other in the first place. And He is He is love. He is the purest, most awesome demonstration of love. And He is the centerpiece of our faith. And so our eyes need to be fixed on Him. And if we want to love each other, Let's help each other fix our eyes on Jesus. So next week and the following week and the week after when we talk about prayer and serving and encouraging and and all these different avenues that we have at our disposal to help each other and to love each other, they are all means of doing that, fixing our eyes on Christ, to lift up our head to meet others' needs. They are all ways in which we can help each other fix our eyes in Christ. I mean, I can give you just one personal example. And I have been um, through just some unique trials to me lately um, that have really been getting me down. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where when you read and you pray, um, your relationship almost gets... Uh, with God almost gets uh, like uh, hijacked by that thing. So like every time you pray, you're always praying about whatever that thing is, that whether <laughs> that trial of like, oh, I need a job or whatever the case might be, or this this is broken or this. And, and all of a sudden, like for a week, a month, a year or whatever, everything that you talk about God is filtered by that problem. And every time you read God's word, everything like everything that you read is filtered by that. And I found myself calling my friend yesterday and he said, Kurt, I'm dying. Because every time I pray, every time I read my Bible, it's all filtered by this. And I don't want to do it anymore. Like I would just rather go veg in my bed and watch Netflix. And just like tune, like tune this thing, you know, turn it off for a while and just like lull myself into sleep. That sounds way better. And and I said, and I know the right answer. So I don't need you to tell me. I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. But I don't know how to do that. And the way he encouraged me, he said, why don't you call up one of your friends that is local 
ask him, instead of you having to sit there and read your Bible all by yourself every day, why don't you just see if one of your friends could, at lunch, go out with you, you read a passage of scripture together, and you talk about it. What a novel idea. So I did that today. And I'm going to do, we started the book of Hebrews, and we're going to do that till we're done. I don't know how long it'll take. But something as simple as that, which might take you 30 minutes, one day a week, is just a simple, easy way where you can love others by pointing them to Christ. I need that. I need my eyes refocused on Christ. And I suspect that I'm not alone in that. I wish I was. Um for your sake, but I I don't think I am. And so I would, if I could, highly recommend that you you keep this, because it seems so unrelated, but keep this in the back of your mind, and then think about ways that with your spouse, or with your kids even, with your friends, how can you help them have their gaze fixed on Christ? That is the most loving thing that you could do for, for a fellow believer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that it just, it, it, it is an amazing, amazing book. It meets our need, and it points us to our need, and our need is you. And uh, when life really stinks, and we have all walked through really stinky times in life, um, horrible circumstances, and we've all walked through really good ones too. And, and in the valley of the shadow of death, as David writes about in Psalm 23, up to the, the, the mountain peaks, um, God, you are there and you are present and, and we need you. And our eyes need to be fixed on you, our, our Savior, our Shepherd, um, our King. So I pray that you would help us um, to... Be focused and fixed on you, your son, but also to help each other be fixed upon your son. In your name I pray. Amen.